0: programming throwdown episode 123 project planning
1: take it away jason hey everybody so we are uh, here having another duo episode to talk about project planning which is something that is you know, super important. I think that you know there might be a dedicated class. You know, I, I think at, at my college there was a like a there was a class called software engineering, but it was a, an elective, and and I never took it. But apparently, if you take if you had taken that class, they actually cover project planning. But I had zero experience with project planning, you know, academic experience, and so you know it would have been awesome for me to have this episode or something like it when I started. I feel like. um um, it's something that that is super super important to make sure that you kind of follow through and also like so that you're not just overwhelmed mentally with everything that you're able to sort of you know keep a lot of these notes so you don't have to you, you kind of have a brain dump, you know, yeah, I think I also missed to that class <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that uh it's so that's all right, we'll make up for it today. You know, actually, I, I remember the reason I didn't take it was because they spent a huge chunk of the semester talking about UML, and I looked up UML on the internet, and I was like, no, no, I don't think I, don't think I want to take this class. <laughs> oh, man. That
0: rings right up there with I looked up the teacher ratings, and the teacher is rated as hard. So I uh, didn't, no, I'm just I didn't say I did that. I just I hear people say that.
1: Yeah, I think UML was, and I don't even. It's going to be very lucid here, but I think it was some kind of diagramming thing where I remember there's like a picture of a person, right. and the person goes into a flowchart, and then I guess a happier person comes out or something. I don't know that the person goes into the flowchart, but yeah. but it was enough.
0: UML. It's interesting. We should talk about it at some point. I mean, I, I think it's like a, the idea that I think is it unified or universal modeling language? I mean, like the idea for describing architecture that way is useful. But I think it had a heyday, probably, yeah, like around the mid 2000s, the OTS. Is that what yep, they were calling yep. them? The zero X's. Anyways, they're around that time where they thought they were going to like auto generate code or like you would go into the box and like type your code in the box and then it would uh, get hooked up.
1: Yeah, oh, I remember those autocode. Actually, for, for GUI stuff, autocode is still quite nice. Like I used, what did I use recently? Oh, yeah, I used uh, the QT, QT Designer, which is 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 a, a, for a project I was doing. I wanted a cross-platform UI. And I mean, oh, man, we should definitely do a show on cross-platform UI because I spent so much time You know, researching this, and I'm usually it's not like me. I mean, one of the things we tell people on the show is to pick something and just stick to it. But I really couldn't find anything really, you know, that I wanted that was cross platform that worked well. And uh, finally settled on QT. Initially, I was a little hesitant to use QT because it seemed pretty heavyweight and it has sort of QT as its own style and all of that. But from a programming standpoint, Qt was really nice. And they have this thing called Qt Designer where it, you know, it auto-generates Python code and then you go and fill in, like when you click the button, what should happen. So for that, it works well. But I think that, you know, yeah, back when UML was getting really popular, I think people had this vision that everything would, all programming would work that way, where you'd have this visual designer and then you would write like little bits of code in the designer. And uh, that's never really taken off, other than that one use case. Actually, there was something, uh, Patrick. You might you might remember this. There was something where you could build like ETL, like data pipelines, using this visual designer. I think it's called like Screwdriver or something. But but you would like drag and drop blocks, and then each block you'd put in a bit of SQL, and then you'd sort of like assemble these blocks of like SQL. And then one of the blocks could be, you know, write to this key value store or something like that. That actually was I also thought that was pretty nice but they ended up killing that project and I think I think what it was is the people who were much better at SQL and data engineering than I was hated it so it was, it was like it was good for for novices like me but then somehow it was worse a lot worse than just a text editor for the people who really know what they're doing and maybe that's the general trend
0: yeah I I I don't know exactly what you're talking about but it sounds vaguely familiar. I mean, I think there are places where specifically like the opposite is true, where describing the ETEL pipeline that you describe in code with pictures as like an output documentation tool is, is still pretty widely used.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we're going to dive into project planning. But first, let's talk a little bit about home NAS. So, Ooh. Um, you know, a lot of people have a lot of data at home now i mean i have um you know a backup of all my photos um you know i know google photos does uh they change the resolution of the photo right so even though they'll store infinite and actually i think they're even they're gonna stop storing infinite but anyways so i just always keep a backup of all my photos and all sorts of other documents i have a folder called books i have a folder called research papers you know it has like 90 percent content i've never read it probably will never read but it's there you know, I have, I have, we have a whole ton of information. We have Plex running, which which um, Plex is a way to stream video, uh, you know, within your house. And, uh, and so all this data needs to be accessible and even ideally accessible, you know, uh, outside your house with the right security, you know, authentication, all of that. And um, what I used to do up until a week ago was I used to just use the oldest desktop in the house. Um, and so I had this desktop that I don't even know how old it is, maybe a decade old, um, you know, and it has like a ton of hard drives in it and it's barely able to run the latest Ubuntu. Like it's just chugging along and trying to, you know, keep all of these hard drives up and running. Um, and I had a, I had a drive failure. And so it really like made me rethink like, okay, what do I want to do here? What I ended up doing is similar. I ended up getting, there's this thing called a Yata map, Yata. map yada master but it's basically a hardware raid enclosure so it's a you you plug usb into your computer and then the other end is this enclosure which has i think mine has five drives in it and it does raid 5 uh, in hardware so from your view it's just like plugging in a uh you know a, a a usb drive but it's actually this five drive monstrosity and so you just get this like i don't know i think it's like 12 terabyte usb drive is kind of how it looks to the computer and so i have that plugged into a raspberry pi so that's that's my new setup but uh but yeah what do you have patrick
0: i have actually like an old proper was it synology nas that uh i got from someone um that didn't want It It was like older so i've used that before and you know also interestingly and depending on your backup strategy i mean we have a similar thing like backing up to the various cloud small parts of our data that's like super important like you know pictures and documents and stuff and then for larger stuff what i've done between various computers is uh we've talked about on the show before i think it used to be bt sync but now it's resilio sync and so it it kind of mirrors over time between computers and even like Some of the stuff that's like family important to like my brothers or my father or whatever, we have one of those folders between computers. So like some of the stuff that I put there and they put there as well, and then it backs up multiple sites, right? So like, as long as if not both of our houses were taken out by some catastrophe, in theory, some of that data would be recoverable. But also what I've come to realize is like a lot of stuff that I was backing up, even if like hard drives are cheap, it's just like it's not worth it it's kind of like storing stuff in your house like oh it's cheap to buy these clothes i'll just buy more and more clothes but then you need bigger closets yep, and yep. you run out of space and you start being compelled to buy a bigger house i think oh is at marie condo yeah whatever that's right in here i don't know that story but
1: yeah digital marie condo
0: <laughs> i think the same thing is true like i don't need to back up my entire steam library like whatever steam has its own issue i don't want to even get into that but like if I have a Steam game and the Steam game is really big, like part of having bought it on Steam is the ability of like redownload yep, yep. it. And you can get into your own, like, do you really own it or not? But for me personally, what I've just made that decision is like, I don't need my all my games backed up yep. because I can just redownload them if, I, if something were to happen. And basically that can cut out a ton. Same thing, like I don't need to back up core Windows or even Windows settings anymore. Like a lot of that stuff. Now the folders that have like documents in them, yes. All the other stuff, like settings, weren't like, look, worst case, I'll just build that back up myself. And so, what I do is I do make, like, for certain of those things, like clones locally on that computer. But for the most part, like, I just will reinstall and then bring back the data that matters. And yeah, that would kill a lot of time, but it's the expectedness of it, right? Like, it would take a catastrophic hard drive failure, which can happen and does happen. But what is it going to happen during, like, my usage pattern? It's like maybe once every x years five years four years and like reinstalling Look, to be honest is probably better than just like bringing forward
1: all of that uh, debris yeah yeah totally agree yeah that's a really good call out you know when i look at my nas i mean it has a lot of books i thought i would read and things like that but but I, i'm the same as you i don't put games on there i feel like anything i could read, download um you know i don't really have on there i mean i guess i could re-download the books and the research papers but it's more just like like uh, I always feel like oh one of these days I'll I'll need to know like what are all the graph theory research papers I've ever looked up. Um so it's more of just like a personal archive.
0: Yeah, that's a great point though. Like I, I feel similar and it's the same thing with like my bookmarks. Like I constantly have not a good way to like bookmark things and like keep them organized. It's just like right now I have like a billion tabs open and a tab is like a lightweight bookmark, and there's like short-term, long-term memory, like. Substance, short-term, occasionally I want it to automatically go into long-term. And it's just because searching the internet for an obscure graph theory paper, I don't read graph theory papers. (laughs) Let's pretend I did. Like, then, you you know, searching is really quite difficult sometimes. And this has happened to me. Like, I don't know that it's important until I kind of, it's too late. So having like a history of what you looked at or whatever, and for, like you said, books or whatever, what you're talking about is you want to save the curation of them, but like the data itself is not that interesting. but all of us fall into these traps that like the tools just aren't there yet to model that. I mean, people will probably write us in and tell us some good tips. Yeah, definitely. Please do. But I mean, I think like what you're saying is even just having a recording of the file names of your file folders, which is of course very lightweight, has a lot of the value of actually recording the data, but it's just easier to record the data.
1: Yeah, so, so I think that the big reasons for a NAS for me are pictures and videos. So, you know, we don't have, I don't think, well, actually, I take it back. We definitely have some way to play DVDs in this house. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's probably in a box somewhere, like an old PlayStation <laughs> or something. Play? Yeah. But you know, we have all of the DVDs are uh, have been have been ripped, you know, even like the DVD of our wedding and everything. All of that is ripped and and on the on the NAS. And then and then all of our pictures are on the NAS. If it wasn't for those two, then I would probably just run Resilio Sync on all the computers in the house. I mean, I have that as well. And so actually, this is an interesting question is, do you use Resilio Sync or Dropbox for personal things? I feel like I, I'm kind of using both. And sometimes I wonder like, you know, yeah, I mean, like if so i gonna hack my Dropbox and get forms with my address on them or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, people will get your social security number or your tax returns or whatever and commit very targeted fraud against you. Like, I, I mean, It's the same thing like if, this gets really depressing. If someone decides to rob your house specifically, they will watch it. They will decide when you're not home. They will decide what's in it and what they're going to grab, right? And then to defend against that is very difficult. What you're looking for is, you, you know, defending against someone just like getting onto your computer with some zero day worm and encrypting your, you know, your computer and then trying to like blackmail you and a thousand other people that like, you know pay or we're going to keep it encrypted right like could they do that yeah and then what you're talking about is unless they the nas is good because it's probably a completely different stack than your desktop so the chance of it sharing is zero day although recently a lot of the nasa's had a really nasty vulnerability where they could get wiped so i think like the synology ones or something so yeah so be careful
1: i mean i think that yeah i think that dropbox like i I totally agree with you that if someone's targeting you personally and for whatever reason they like just really want to get you and they're willing to fish you and do all these things and you're, you're in a bad spot but for all of us who are just normal dudes i think that it's really the the concern is that dropbox somehow gets hacked in a way where everyone's dropbox but then i guess you know i guess to follow that train of thought if everyone's dropbox was leaked my Dropbox is probably not high priority. Like in other words, like, like seeing forms, like like medical forms from like a hospital bill with my address or something is not what they really want to see. They probably want, you know, I don't know, tax returns or something. But yeah, so, so uh, you know, I guess I have a mixture of Resilio Sync, which is syncing among all the computers. It's similar to Patrick, I have it also syncing with, with my uh, folks' computers. And then I have the NAS for, you know, the pictures. We've just terabytes of pictures and DVDs and all of that. And yeah, it seems to work pretty well. I I debated getting the Synology, but I felt like I already have several Raspberry Pis that run 24-7. I kind of felt like I might as well, you know, installing Plex on Ubuntu is pretty, or on, I guess, Debian for Raspberry Pi is pretty easy. So so I went that route, but I'd be curious folks at home, um, or actually Patrick, I mean, like, how would you think a Synology compares to just like like running an Ubuntu machine?
0: I mean, better and worse. It's a more appliance approach. So it's not the, I'm uploading everything to Google and subject to the whims of their terms and conditions or whatever. Like you normally, it's sort of your Mm -hmm. box. So there's some level you could pull the hard drive off and like mount it on your own computer, worst case or whatever. Ubuntu is nice, but then you got to, like, there's time spent, like, updating it, choosing what to install, getting it to an... There's stuff like, you know, talk about, like, Unraid or FreeNAS or is it OpenNAS, which are more tailored to, you know, having a Samba share. So if you want to, like, mount it from Windows or whatever, which is stuff that sort of Synology would come out of the box. You can figure all that out, absolutely. And in fact, probably build a much more capable machine for cheaper unless you factored in how much, like, time you spend on it and put any value on that time
1: yeah that's a really really good call out yeah i think as someone had already done a lot of samba and all these things and that was incremental but yeah you're right if, if i was just starting out and i had a linux machine and i needed you know windows to see the hard drives and all of that i mean that is that is like uh weeks to, to like get that right and actually have it like <laughs> be really smooth and like work when the machine starts and everything
0: but let's not lie. I mean, most of this is a hobby and it has a vague, like in theory, help to our careers longer term by staying up on tech and learning new things and being in that space. So
1: yeah, that's a good call. So maybe, okay, here's our advice. So if we were to if we were to sort of conclude with advice for people who want to set up a home NAS, maybe you have a desktop. Uh, so, you know, in my case, you know, I lost a hard drive in this machine and also the processor fan went out. And so the machine won't boot because the pro- it actually, it's interesting, it'll boot but then it won't restart because the processor gets so hot that the BIOS won't let you continue. So like I had to shut it off, wait for the processor to cool down, and then turn it back on. So, so I lost the hard drive. The processor is dead on this thing. Oh, yeah, but I had a RAID. So, so it's, it was RAID uh, 1 or whatever. So I didn't actually lose any data. Um, but if, if you have everything running just on your desktop and you have like all the things you've ever programmed in your whole life, you know, some of that stuff's like sentimental, or you might have pictures or other things. You know, th- definitely think about getting some kind of NAS setup. It could be as simple as just putting more hard drives into your computer. If you don't have a lot of time, I think Synology, I know several people who have Synology and like it, but uh, but I definitely think something like that would be really important. You should check into it. If if you want to put in the time and effort, I think getting a a Ubuntu or Debian or getting a Linux box. Connected to a bunch of hard drives is, uh, uh, for me at least, it's been the way to go. Agreed. All right. So jumping into news, my first news story is this pretty cool thing. It's a it's a homebrew CNC machine. Patrick, what does CNC stand for? I don't actually know. Computer numerical control. And so what that it means to me, and maybe I'm totally wrong here, is it's basically like a drill, like a drill that you could control with a computer, and you could you can like carve things out and did I get that right? <laughs> How would you explain this? No, a mill. It's normally a mill. So it's normally like, a,
0: so the difference between a drill is uh, braced to only go like up and down, not side to side. So no side loading. So as bearings meant to allow you to push into a material, but not drag through a material. Versus a router is a machine that is braced with bearings on the side. So if you drag it across the material and they're side loading, that's oh, like engineered for really? it. And so a mill or a CNC is, it used to be a mill was these things with like handles and screwdrives and like you would twist various knobs and move and shave stuff down. And that's how most like heavy machinery is still built. This CNC, I assume you're talking about, I haven't looked at it yet, is like a router that can go up and down, but doesn't apply a lot of up and down force. But then side to side is braced so that you can go through a material and like hog it out and it won't break the internals of either the thing that's moving the motor around or the motor itself.
1: So you're saying if I, and this this shows how little I understand mechanical stuff. So you're saying if I took like a drill, like a power drill and I tried to go, well, I'd need a special bit. Let's say I had a bit that had blades on the side or something. And I tried to like go sideways with the drill. It would like break the drill because it's like not meant for.
0: Not immediately. Okay, but it would do damage. Yeah, the basically like the bearings and the internal structure isn't meant for side loading. Got it. So it's sturdy, but if you did it continue it's, it's more what happens is people try to do it on their drill press. So if you have a drill press and you're trying to move the material under the drill press constantly and you give it too much, you're going to it's not going to like catastrophically break. It's called the runout, right? The amount of error there is in the con- concentricity of the spinning parts. So the spinning parts begin to oh. wobble. And the reason why is because you're putting pressure on a piece that isn't meant to take that load. And so over time it deforms and then you get, you know, basically more error in the exact diameter of the thing that's spinning. And when you're com- computer controlling it, there it's open loop. So there's no closed loop, which means it it tries to do a thing and it doesn't know if it accomplished the thing. So yeah. that's open loop. Closed loop is you do a thing and then you take a measurement to see if you accomplish the thing you attempted to to uh, change, you attempted to actuate.
1: So so this guy built his own CNC machine from scratch with like three parts. And he got a, uh, there is like like inside of it all is this thing that you could buy. I've actually seen it at Home Depot. I think it's called a router or something, but yeah, yeah. So So inside of all of this is like this cheap $30 router thing but then he's 3d printed all of this stuff around it and i think some of it you have to buy like you know timing belts and stuff and he's and and so he's end up with his own cnc machine which looks like pretty big i mean i looked into this at one point and getting a tiny cnc machine is like at least a few hundred dollars and so with this it's like looks relatively cheap and you end up with a big cnc machine what's your take on this patrick does this look like a good idea or just like a fun thing to do but not a good idea <laughs>
0: I mean, I've had one before. The one I had was a branded one, which is the brand has sort of changed over time, called a shape Oko. Oh, interesting. So it's it's more like a kit, but it's just, I'm looking at this now. Yes, that Makita router in the middle is meant for a human to hold and push through wood to to, you know, shave wood sideways. So it's it's using the right thing. Got it. These are like industrial ideas that are being made for the hobbyists. If you have a need for so I had a shape oko, which is the same idea as this when I had it when I was using it. The issue is that like it kicks up a ton of sawdust. So if you don't normally do woodworking or you're used to 3D printing, they're relatively like 3D printing is relatively clean. When you start to do like power tool woodworking, this bit is spinning super, super fast and it's throwing tiny bits of wood dust. This picture I'm looking on their website is uh, they're, they're carving MDF, which is basically sawdust glued together. So, when you cut through it, it's remaking sawdust and blowing it into the air. I heard that MDF is toxic. It has formaldehyde in it. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, be careful with it. But basically, it's making sawdust that's going everywhere, tiny bits, and it's just flowing into the air. And so. So, wait, wait, what do you do about that? Vacuum it up at the end.
1: Oh, okay, got it. Wear, wear a dust mask.
0: Uh, <laughs> okay a lot of people try to put like a cover around it that has a vacuum attached to it but even then like the vacuum fills up pretty quickly like it's a, a sort of constant fight um ah, okay. but yeah i would say like there's one i think it's called the mostly printed cnc mp cnc that one i have heard about a little bit more there's the shape Oco, which is like a consumer grade there's several other consumer grade um cncs as well i mean it's if you have a use for it like cutting out thick pieces of wood or making a sculpture in the face or whatever it's definitely a super interesting hobby to be in so yeah i mean it's cool
1: yeah well check it out i think if you have the time it's similar to uh building your own NAS, Um <laughs> if you want to if you want to develop a skill and you have some time this is a really cool project I maybe would start with building your own 3D printer. I've done that before and I'm as you can as you can uh, hear I know very little about this stuff and I was able to to pull that off. So maybe start there, but if you've done that, if you've built your own 3D printer, this would be a cool next thing to do and I just I think the the video is really compelling like it does exactly what you would want it to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, the small size, I'm looking at Shapeoko now, they don't have the small one I had gotten, so they start much larger. But the ones that you used to make were four feet by eight feet, so they were meant to cut up like an entire sheet of plywood that you would get from Home Depot or whatever. But four feet by eight feet, most people don't have that much space in their garage.
1: And that probably costs like thousands of dollars, right? Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. How much would this cost? I haven't looked at
1: the BOM, the bill of materials.
0: I mean, the big expense is the stepper motors and the the sort of like rails and the controller. But I mean, if I had to guess, probably like $500, $600 if you had to source it, news.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to guess too. Uh, Again, cool hobby. So
0: Related actually, unintentionally, but in a bit vaguely related to a CNC machine is when CNC machines make cuts, you need to make curves through those uh, through the wood to make your beautiful shaped uh, electric guitar that you're carving out, or even a surface. Uh, and if you were to look into modeling that surface, you might run across something called NURBS or Bézier curves. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. So I, there was recently an article by, I am, I, I am not going to attempt to say the person's name, I oh, will, okay, Bartosz Cichanowski. There's a link in the show notes. There's a link in the show notes. That's right. It's called Curves and Surfaces. And so he walks through. And this guy's done a number of articles. Check out all the articles on his site. He always has like a bunch of really, really good interactive visualizations. And so he starts through sort of like first principles of uh, linear interpolations um, between two points. And then what if you did that at like had two line segments that were you know of course drawn by a linear interpolation between them. But what if you had, you know, instead of going between the points, you drew a line that connects an interpolation between the points and then a line that connects that line. And that's how you end up defining Bézier curves. Wow, this is cool. It's very interactive. Yes. And then if you start defining curves, then you could define surfaces and patches and, you know, provide smoothing on the derivatives, the first derivative or second derivative and what the impacts of that would be. And What would it mean to have kinks or, you know, sharp surfaces? And how would you handle that? I mean, just goes, it's actually rather, if you make it through all of this and sort of really internalize all of it, you will have a very good understanding of how a lot of modeling is done, how a lot of 3D graphics is done.
1: This is so freaking cool. You guys have got to go on this website. I'm on it on my phone here. And even on the phone, actually, the phone is probably even better because of the touchscreen, but it is so freaking satisfying to play with these uh, curves. So, this is
0: how like, these curves that he ends up talking about is used, like how Pixar like, models the characters. Like, if you want to model someone's nose, right? A nose isn't made of a bunch of triangles. A nose is made out of, you know, a, a sort of elastic material skin draped over a substructure of muscles and cartilage and whatever. Anyway, so you have to have an organic shape. And so, that organic shape, uh, you need a good way of sort of defining it. Eventually, you might end up reducing it to triangles. But um, anyway, so this is really interesting. This comes up depending on obviously like what part of uh, computer science you're in. But if you do much with graphics or rendering or uh, even fonts, how fonts are rendered, fonts are defined using these Bezier curves. So how you define the like curve on the bottom of the S shape, right? Like you define that in these Bezier curves. So most all fonts are defined using these style of things. So it's actually used pretty heavily, even if you kind of don't know it and you might run across it. There have been recently a bunch more like very easy to understand interpretations of this. Prior to that, you would have mostly gone to a computer graphics book and tried to read and it would have given you a lot of math and a lot of linear algebra and said, here you go, here's how you define them. And if that's not your background, you would have been like, I don't get any of this. So explaining it in sort of layman's terms really helps you at least when you go into Inkscape and you're dragging the handles on the curve defining, <laughs> you understand like what it's doing or why it loops back on itself, like at a fundamental level, like what is the computer trying to do? So I definitely recommend people uh, sort of go and check it out. If nothing else, than like the cool graphics and learning a little bit more about like, I don't like maybe fundamental is overstating it, but like a very like core piece of a lot of modern rendering and graphics and design.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, this is really, really fun to play with. And it'll give you a really good understanding of, you know, but yeah, how 3D geometry really works and it'll connect. The, the thing I love about this too is is it, actually there's parts of it where it shows you an equation. And as you are dragging these points around, there's updating the equations in real time. And so you can kind of, in your brain, you can like create synesthesia between like this mathematics and then what's actually happening in this in this picture. Super cool, man. Okay, so mine is also kind of a visual presentation, which is cool. We have amazing flow. This is this might be our fastest flowing, cleanest flowing episode. Mine's a visual explanation of raft consensus protocol. So, you have this issue where, you know, we were talking about your NAS at home and having RAID storage and so storing things on on multiple hard drives. And that's not hard to do because you have this one USB cable or you have this one backplane on your motherboard, right? So there are all these hard drives are ultimately being controlled by one computer. But if you go to like, let's say a database at a, you know, a really popular website, like take Amazon or something, you know, they can't just have one computer controlling everyone's shopping cart, right? And so they need to have this like massively distributed fault-tolerant database, but then they also have to have like many different, what they call um, leaders, you know, places where you can write data. And then also have many followers, places where you could, servers where you could read data but you can't write to them. And so, you know you have this this huge array of leaders and followers, and you know because it's so large, you know let's say it's like ten thousand machines, and if a hard drive lasts three years, then I mean you could do the math, but like there's hard drives failing all the time in these machines, and or there's other sorts of failures happening, um, and so you know you could have situations where even leaders fail, and now new leaders have to be elected. So imagine, you know you expect to have three leaders, one of the leaders has failed. And so you now need to make one of your followers promoted to be a leader. All the followers are running the exact same code. You know How do you do that? And um, you, know, you, you can could, you could imagine like heuristics, like, okay, let's have everyone report their IP address and pick the lowest one or something like that. But any type of heuristic like that will cause you to have sort of catastrophic failures. Like imagine a subnet goes down and now it's like really confusing for everybody. And so someone a long time ago came up with Paxos, and, um, and, and it's a way for machines to negotiate with each other without a lot of a priori information um, and, and to try. And so eventually, you know, there is something that breaks ties. It could be as simple as just like the, the fact that the processors are not exactly doing the same thing and, and uh, they're not deterministic, right? So there's a way to break ties but but more importantly there's a way to achieve consensus so like once you have some way that ties are broken can you use this tie breaking to eventually pick one single leader um when you know all the followers raise their hand at the same time and say i could do it right and so you know paxos is very very difficult to sort of explain intuitively and then there was a zookeeper which is an apache project which dealt with some of the like Paxos is an academic thing but then in practice just like anything in practice there's real world challenges that you have to face and so Zookeeper was a project that was built to do this uh, leader election and all of that distributed consensus but that also became extremely complicated and as Yahoo and Google and these big companies were finding issues they were patching them in and then maybe like they would fix a problem that required, that that meant like these 17 other patches aren't needed anymore, but they wouldn't get cleaned out. And it just became very bloated. Um, So someone wrote Raft, and I don't actually remember where Raft came from, Um, but Raft is like kind of a rewrite of distributed consensus. It's very clean, very elegant. And what I'm linking to here is a really nice explanation of Raft, you know, how it works and the principles behind it. And it has these cool infographics where it shows how... You know, okay. This leader dies, and it represents everything with these little dots. Um, so this dot went away, and now these other dots, you know, need to become need to pick a leader, and it kind of goes through how all of that works.
0: I think if you, when you start to think like you were kind of saying, it's actually a little bit mind blowing. Like when you think about if I have ten thousand computers, like trying to roughly mirror the state of each other and like decide what what information is correct, and you start dealing with even the speed of light delays from one location to another data center, you know, halfway across the world. And of course, like it, it isn't strictly just speed of light relative to the speed of a hard drive or whatever, or a Ram. And then start thinking, like you were saying, just like power outages or whatever, what is it? Neutrino strikes or whatever you always, you know, attribute <laughs> yeah. like getting a bit flipped in Ram to um, like, when you increase your exposure like that, the problem is just so much more complicated.
1: Yeah, it's totally mind-blowing. And like, yeah, I mean, I mean, all these leader, all these uh, followers, they're all, you know, the same. They're probably even running the same hardware, right? So they all just raise their hand at exactly the same time and say, oh, we saw the leader died. You know, I'll be the next leader. And it's like, well, what do you do with that at the scale of 10,000, right? I mean, it's easy, dude.
0: I mean, everyone always says the thing you're saying, like pick the lowest, pick the lowest one. Well, oh,
1: pick the first person who raised their hand. It's like, well, how do you even define first? Like, yeah, like who is going to be the referee there? If, like, if once as soon as you have a referee who can define first, then you've already solved the problem. But like, yeah, you, have you didn't. Again. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like now you have two problems. <laughs> you just have one god
0: machine that sits somewhere in a like you know special housing <laughs> that just you know guarantees to be up. But what happens on sundays then <laughs> yeah okay i mean mainframes people joke but like that that's like banks and mainframes and stuff is in part like because of trying to get around this what they call like big iron right it's just yeah, like right one really big powerful machine that you just four-way redundancy on every part inside and it it, it, it sounds like in some ways silly because things like google facebook whatever went to commodity hardware roughly yep. but like There are cases if your like transactions per second are low enough that maybe it just makes sense to have like one or two really, really like a leader follower, you know, config. And the one machine just has an uptime that is like so guaranteed and you restart it, like you said, maybe on Sundays when the bank is closed, like every Sunday during this hour, you restart the machine. And mm-hmm. the the you know follower does the failover test, and then it goes down. You know the next hour or whatever, and you have like a team of people dedicated to keeping those two machines alive.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that's definitely a real thing. I think even today there's companies that run that way, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think given as you said, if the QPS is low enough, it saves a lot of hassle. But yeah, the Raft thing is is totally mind blowing. Definitely check it out. I'm I've always been fascinated by it. I haven't had a reason to implement it myself, but. Uh, but it's always been a fascination, and it's very. It's also, as I said, with with Patrick's article, it's like super fun to watch the uh, animations. I do not
0: have a good segue, so we're just hard cutting to my article, <laughs> which is the mathematics of twenty forty eight. So there's more to the article title, but I don't want to spoil it yet. So twenty forty eight was a game that enjoyed. I don't want to call it brief because someone will say, like, "Oh no, I still play. It's the best game ever." But you have a a grid of, oh man, I don't even, uh, five by five, I think it was, it's sort of like five by five. And then there are tiles that have a number on them. So you start with like maybe the number one and the number one somewhere else in this five by five grid. And then you slide a direction to the right, up, down, or left. I mean, that's each of the four directions. And all of the tiles slide to the side of the grid that you swiped to. So like one tile is in the bottom left and one tile is in the upper right and you swipe right, then that bottom left tile is going to slide to the right side just like the other one. And then if two tiles that are currently the same number crash into each other, they merge and become double that number. So if Do they you They have
1: to like, be consecutive or how does that work? No, they
0: have to be the same number. So like if you have a 1 and a 1, and you crash them into each other; they'll
1: become a two. But like, what if there's another number in between the ones? Yeah. And so one? then, if there's like a two and a
0: one, and then a two, and you slide down, like stacked vertically, and you slide down, you'll just have two, one, two at the okay. bottom of the screen. Got it. So yeah. if you could somehow get the one to slide away, then you could crash the two and two to each other. Got it. I I, I probably butchered that, but but you get it. No, I
1: get it. I get it.
0: Okay. <laughs> and so there's of course like a bunch of descriptions of how you would. Um, like how new tiles spawn. So sometimes when you swipe, new tiles will spawn on the screen and they spawn with like a given distribution. And so like, it's not always going to be, it's most likely to be, I don't remember, like most likely to be a one, a little less likely to be a two, a little less likely to be a four. And so numbers are going to spawn on. And the idea is to keep collapsing down until you have a tile, which is 2048. So 2048 is what, 11 doublings from one. and. Wait, now Jason's counting. Wait, Hang on. That sounds a right. So 256 <laughs> is 8, right? Then 512 is 9 and 1024 yeah, is 10. Yeah, you got it right. Man, that was fast. OK, so 24 is 11 doublings, right? Uh, so you need to keep doubling and doubling. But each doubling requires two inputs, right? So if you think about it, if you only ever got ones, you would need to eventually have like collapsed 2048 ones together. It's a lot, right? That's a lot of collapsing you would need to do. Uh, but what ends up happening is like we, like Jason was already asking about, if you have like a two and then a one and a two stacked on top of each other, like you really want to collapse the twos, but maybe you don't because maybe actually you're going to collapse that one into a two and you want to collapse it into one of the other twos to make a four. So when and how you have to manage the board. So even if it's, you don't just always greedily take the you know highest number or the lowest number, like you need a bit of strategy because the more the bill's board starts to fill up with this you know new tiles generating
1: it becomes too crowded and then eventually you lose right normally without getting to 2048 well i see so if the board gets full up and you can't collapse anything then you're done yes
0: that's right
1: yeah. got it then you lose and so of course not every game is is
0: winnable i don't think or at least not with every decision and so uh you kind of don't know what's going to happen so you play and you just kind of mindlessly mindlessly swipe right so then the question is like what's a good strategy so, um, you know, when you're playing, the, so in a game like tic tac toe, right, like the user, the other person can put in one of the nine spaces. So you can kind of like, you, you've, I actually saw a t shirt with it on. Like you can have a pictorial diagram of like the optimal tic tac toe strategy in like, I don't know, a very few states that, you know, each you only have X or O, it's your turn, then their turn. They can only go in so many places. The branching factor is really low. You can actually represent the whole tree in like a very small amount of things, which is like if you start in the upper left, basically, and then no matter where they play, you can like predeterminedly know the next state. Mm -hmm. But then what about if you listen to people talking about like AlphaGo, where the number of branching factors are really high, the number of states is gigantically big, there's there's a whole, you know, another class of problems. So for this 2048 article, the reason why I have it here is not for building general game AIs. But it's talking about something which I was hearing a lot about as you start hearing about uh, machine learning, <clears throat> artificial intelligence. Depending on your feeling about that, um, <laughs> but is is uh, hidden Markov models and Markov decision processes, yep. which is uh, I'm going to butcher this. Jason's going to tell me I'm wrong. But my takeaway from reading this article, which the reason I bothered to read it was because I keep hearing about these MDPs, MDPs, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to do and this yep. modeling, is that uh, for this game as I described. First of all there's this random part, right? It isn't like you battling another person. The game is just randomly generating what happens next.
1: It's like Sudoku, right? Oh, oh no, but it's not because uh when you swipe things, I've never played this game so I'm just trying to piece it together. Yeah, when yeah. you swipe things, there's empty space there. What happens? Like more numbers go in that space. Yes. So the the the, the game will roll some dice and decide, you know,
0: it'll generate a random number and decide where and what number to place there with some probability
1: okay yeah
0: so you control your action but you don't control the other person's action it's not like the game is trying to beat you right it's just randomly happening so you can't even apply really game theory in that like the opponent is like i can know what they're going to do because strategically they're going to do this so each state you have a choice you can swipe left right up or down and depending on what the game is gonna do, will determine if that was a good or bad thing. But that doesn't mean you just pick randomly. You can know that, hey, I swipe up, the game state is this, the distribution is that, the probability that that's a good move is you know, 0.2 best move. And this other move is 0.4 best move. And the way you might try to do that is by basically marching the states forward, figuring out like if you're in a winning or losing state and then propagating it you know, back, to your state so roughly i'm giving you a high level vision of without going in a full explanation of markov decision processes because i'm no expert um but sometimes you'll end up in a state where you'll lose and there may be a choice where no matter what you do there's some probability of losing but maybe you pick right. the one that minimizes that probability right and maybe there's a really good state you want the computer to give you and so you want to like try to increase the likelihood that you'll get a, an improvement so he starts with, or she—I don't—I don't, I don't know—the article writer starts with a two-by-two two grid, and I think getting to 64, and then running this mark, this Markov decision process as a way of showing how this would happen in a in a sort of much more bounded problem set where you can sort of reason about this, and then talk about how you would extrapolate it to the full game and to playing to 2048, where you may not be able to hold all possible game states in your memory at one time because they become too high. And how would you apply heuristics? How would this Markov decision process work? And just a a really good introduction. So if you, in your ramblings about the internet, have come across uh, Markov decision processes, which is related in a not way that I'm entitled to speak about hidden Markov models themselves, uh, then you know this may be an article that is pretty interesting to you.
1: Cool. Yeah. I mean, you did a really good job. So just like. Uh... People don't know, like that was my whole PhD was on MDPs and DPs and everything. And uh, yeah, the article is super, super interesting. Definitely check it out. If you've played 2048, it's really cool to see something that you've played, you, you know, connect connect uh, this tech to something that you've played. It really like makes it real. But yeah, I think you nailed it. I think um, it's, you know, you could say that like maybe it's a partially observable MDP because you don't know like what's what's coming next. But you can model it with an MDP. And as you said, it just means that sometimes you'll lose, anyways, just because you were unlucky and that's okay. And you just kind of model that, that into the into the system. Okay. Well, I'm glad that
0: you reaffirming that I like got a takeaway actually makes me pretty happy because that means uh, maybe I'm advancing my you never know, right? When it's a topic you don't understand, you read a thing, and you're like, oh, I kind of get it. We don't know if you're right or wrong.
1: Yeah, I know I think you nailed it, man. It's, uh, yeah, I've always had a big fascination with, uh, with uh, you know puzzles and games and, and, and uh, the way that they're solved. And so this, this kind of stuff definitely like scratches that itch. Definitely check out this article. It's, it's really solid.
0: I think it's time for our book of the show.
1: Book of the show. My book of the show is a podcast. I'm totally cheating, but I've been binging on this podcast. It's called Manager Tools Podcast. You know originally, i I found it through a literal search. I actually, I literally wanted tools um to make me a better manager. But what I found instead was was you know their their interpretation of tools, they really mean like techniques or skills or advice. And so while I didn't get any literal tools out of this podcast that I could use to make me more efficient, I'm learning a ton of information and I would recommend this to anybody. I mean, not just managers, like anyone who uh, is working in a job or plans to have any job at all should check out this podcast. You know, I have uh, a lot of these situations or things that I've had in the past and, you know, it's, it's, it. some of these are lessons I learned the hard way and they kind of explain it in so much, you know, better uh, detail and candor, candor. Some of these things are things that I was doing that I think I'm going to change some of them are, are are some of the things they talk about are reaffirming things that I felt like were good ideas, but in general, it talks all about you know kind of uh, being a leader and i think it's it's it, they do a lot of talk about project planning, which is our topic today, so it's it's also a good reference there and um I was listening to an episode today, and one thing that really you know um was funny was was they were talking about sort of how do you delegate? So imagine you have a giant project that you're leading and you need help with that project, right? You could be a manager and you're given a, a project with large scope. You could be a uh, an engineer. You could be just a high school or a college student and you have some team project that you're working on where you're trying to get help with other people. And it talks about, you know, how do you sort of share that responsibility? Um, one of the funny things is they said that one of the people that they um, talked to said, oh, I wish I was CEO because then I wouldn't have any direct responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the idea there was like, if you're the CEO, you just tell people what to do. And then and then when you tell them what to do now, it's their responsibility. And, uh, you know, I mean, most people I think don't, you know, could see, could see where that, where that's going, but just to like make it explicit, that doesn't work that way when you, when you ask someone for help, what you're doing is you're just doubling the responsibility. Now you're responsible and that person's responsible, but it's necessary because you can't do everything by yourself, but but it's not you're not actually reducing any responsibility by becoming a leader. It doesn't work that way. Um, that was a really funny thing that came up in, in today's episode um, of their show, but but uh, definitely check it out. I've been having a blast uh, listening to it. Uh, the people have good candor. They're ex-military people, and so they they speak like ex-military people. And so um, I kind of enjoy it. It's kind of gruff and like straight to the point and stuff, which is that that is uh, I think kind of good for easy for me to listen to. But uh, give it a give it a listen. I've been binging on it. And I've been really enjoying it.
0: My book of the show is also not a book, but it is print. <laughs> so I guess it counts more. Oh, it you beat pages. Me. <laughs> it's make magazine you know i i'm i'm pretty sure that i probably had this like as a reference or something on here before but I, I mean people probably at this point have heard or seen make magazine yeah it used to be
1: like at barnes and noble and stuff it might still yeah, be right I, I think it still is i mean when you if you ever go to those stores <laughs> yeah if barnes it, and go, noble it go, even exists i mean i don't know it goes through ebbs and flows,
0: of like i guess popularity you know there was like the really big boom of like cosplaying and hobby Stuff like when the internet was still in its infancy and like Instructables was really huge. I remember. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, it probably still is around. I mean, I know it is around. I think it got bought by a company. Anyways, you know, this thing has become, went from like the first making it big to like actually, even though it was a niche magazine, it became too generic and more niche magazines that were, you know, like hobbyist electronics, hobbyist cosplay making, hobbyist CNC. Like, all those things became their own topics with enough, you know, ability for people to look into them that, you know, maybe it sort of robbed some of the, like, Make Magazines, you know, yeah. A, a yeah. kind of shine. But I always thought that, you know, although I, there's been very few projects I've ever done out of Make Magazine, always appreciate that, like, they go through, document, describe, and have a way of uh, kind of covering a wide variety of things. From like crazy, dangerous, like Tesla coil making to like, you know, hey, here's a air pressure, uh, you know, soda bottle rocket you can make in your backyard. And, it, you know, I just I still subscribe to it. I even keep the magazines because I feel like having it in hard copy I don't know, is just cool. Oh, you have the physical magazines like recent ones. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. oh
1: i would show people but we're only audio only. I would hold them up. They're right behind me i'm looking right now and i'm seeing thousands <laughs> i'm just kidding
0: <laughs> i don't know that i've kept everyone but I, you know i keep them always like oh there's something in here i want to make or reference or look at It's good i don't know
1: uh, maybe i'm an old old person now but it's nostalgic no i think it, it's kind of like the NAS, right it's satisfying to just have it
0: yeah exactly and, and it, you know just physically thumbing through it you know when you're on an airplane or whatever, where it's still like electronics is a bit uh, uh, of a chore. Although that's even becoming less and less. Um, I kind of used to look forward to going on an airplane mm-hmm. and not being allowed to use electronics. I catch up on reading, but now like that's not even a thing. Well, not going on airplanes, but also airplanes uh, allowing your electronics and having Wi. Well, yeah, that's true.
1: You know what I've done now is I've uh, I've put my uh, phone in in even when the airplane has internet, I still put my phone in airplane mode. You know, without the Wi-Fi. Uh. And that way it's like, I'm at least unplugged and I can, I I won't be able to use the internet.
0: But also the thing I'll recommend is like, you know, of course, they have a blog, lots of articles. I appreciate what they do. They used to have, which I think I've also sort of tapered down or even, you know, gone away to some extent, especially now with COVID, but they used to have maker fairs where, you know, people would come and just celebrate me. That was always really cool.
1: Have you ever gone to that?
0: Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the one in the Bay Area. And uh, that was probably three years ago. It was super fun. I always wanted to go back. And then I wasn't able to go the next year, and I think it rained. And then the the next year was COVID or whatever. So yeah, I don't think that happened. Um, uh, and then I yeah. think they've gone through some sort of restructuring. I didn't follow it exactly. The other thing I'll say is you know, if you have other people who are peripherally interested, it may be very hard to spam them a link or convince them to go to a website or watch a YouTube video, or if you have children right, or whatever like having the magazine around and someone picking it up and just looking at it and like, you know, the sort of lower commitment of that and then becoming intrigued. You know, my kids call it the robot magazine. They're like, oh, look at the robot magazine. Look at it. And I think, you know, (laughs) just having that stuff laying around where you can sort of bump across it as opposed to your, you know, normal kind of filter bubble for maybe other people, even if you yourself, you know, could find it and look for it. Uh, There's some value to that. Anyways, but I, I appreciate what, you know, make magazine, sort of has done in the influence it's had
1: very cool man i i kind of on a related note um i actually learned to solder so i've soldered yeah i've soldered things before but usually soldering to me was like i would just turn the temperature of the soldering iron way too hot this was the other thing i bought the soldering iron from aliexpress (laughs) and it does it didn't tell me celsius versus fahrenheit and i just assumed fahrenheit being an american it was actually Celsius. I yes. was like, man, it's like so freaking hot. And so so that was a big problem. But then also, I would basically just end up with this huge glob of was it flux, I guess? No, solder. Or solder. Okay. I'd end up with this just and and I've never had to solder something on a PCB before. So I've never had to be that precise, anyways. It was usually just repairing, like, you know, like my son pulled a plug out of the wall oh, too okay, hard or okay, something. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you didn't have to, but I know, but just this huge glob of metal, like, and you'd just be this giant, like, uh, mm. state puff marshmallow metal man <laughs> just hanging off the end of everything. And that was my way of fixing things. But I, I, I bought a uh, a tiny speaker, which I'm using for an Arduino project, for an Arduino Halloween project, which, which we did. And, um, as someone who doesn't know how to solder, I was like, well, I'll get the one where I can screw, you know, yeah, yeah like it has like a screw when you screw it, puts two plates together and yep. squeezes the wire. Screw yeah. terminal. Screw terminal. There you go. Um, but the screw, the the wire, the speaker was smaller than I expected and the wire uh, was smaller than I expected and it wouldn't stay in the screw terminal. And I flipped the PCB over and there was like contact points there that you could solder to. And I was like, okay, I rolled up my sleeves. like I'm going to learn how to solder for real, like a real like a like a professional solder oh and professional so, uh, solder okay uh, yeah well i'm gonna try I'm gonna, I'm gonna at least get to the amateur level and so uh you know it just took me a lot of practice and um and yeah i got it to where like i had this really nice shape and it was like also holding the speaker wire uh you know pretty well so
0: i, I mean I i'll warn you like i assume the speaker wire was probably stranded and not solid and soldering stranded wire is much harder than solid wire, and st- soldering wire in general is harder than soldering like actual components, like resistors, diodes, you know, through hole yeah. components. So yeah, you didn't take on the easiest thing for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just thrust on me, right? But uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I also yeah, I was worried that one of the strands would you know cross over and short circuit, mm-hmm. um, but that hasn't happened yet. So uh, I was so satisfied. I did all that work, and then. Um, I started the Arduino up, and uh, it was a probably even an Instructables site, but it was a project where it would play like the Mac boot up sound, like that, "Mm," you know. And it worked, and like it came out of the speaker, and I was like, oh, it felt so satisfying. It was unbelievably satisfying to do that. And then I looked around at like all the other really terrible soldering jobs, and I'm like, one day I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix these. yeah?" (laughs)
0: Yeah, just wait till you learn about doing surface mount soldering with like. 0.1 millimeter pitch, like pieces of pins between things. And so those people get crazy.
1: Oh, man, I can't even imagine.
0: But then, of course, they also use like ovens to basically melt the solder and the pieces together in one go.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I realized is I'll need some kind of, I think they call it helping hands, but it's like these hands with a magnifying glass. Alligator
0: clips on them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Also, the trick with the wire while we're at it and then we can (laughs) move on is get some is they call it pre-tinning the wire. So if you twist the strands together, right? Like just twist them, just w- like one wire's strands, like all together. So, And then take your soldering gun and just apply solder only to the wire and then cut it to the length you want. And then what happens is you have basically already solder on the wire, solder on the pad. So you just have to touch them together and briefly touch the iron, the soldering oh. iron to both of them. And then the solder will flow together and the solder more readily flows to itself than it flows to either of the other metals. And so you basically reduce the like, time you have to spend uh, sort of trying to get that to work.
1: Oh, interesting. Very cool. All right. Well, All right. in interest of time, we'll, we'll go a little <laughs> quicker here. We've had so many cool things to talk about, but we'll, we'll want to give time to the, to, the, to the task at hand. So my tool this show is Workflowy. This is very simple. It's a recursive Google Doc. So, you know, you can write a Google doc or you can write a workflow, you write a document. And at some point in a document, if you're doing something that involves planning or something, at some point, you're going to have a bulleted list. Like it's inevitable, right? It's like things to do or what have you. Anytime you create a bulleted list in Workflowy, you know, you, you can have a nested list and you can actually collapse the list. Um, and then if you tap on one of the bullets, it actually opens that bulleted list as like its own sub document. Oh. And so that way you don't have this enormous, massive bulleted list. And like, like with all the levels, like instead you have, you know, maybe five bullets, they're all collapsed. And when you tap one, it takes you straight to that, you know, it, it, it unfolds that in a new document. So the high level thing here is workflow. It's on desktop, it's on mobile. So it's on all the important platforms. And I've found it really, really useful in keeping track of stuff. I think even for, project planning, I've found Workflowy to be <laughs> super useful. Um, so I've used it for uh, many, many different things. I highly recommend it. Nice. Is it on your NAS? Uh, next, <laughs> <laughs> tie it all together. Next,
0: next up, mine is GitHub Desktop. I don't always use GitHub or Git. Um, well, I should say I do I do use Git for, for our workflow at work, but I am not very good at it. I Same often here. find myself Googling, how do you do this thing again? Yep. Um, GitHub Desktop, which if you uh, have uh, specifically, if you're using a GitHub at all, or even if you're just, I think it works even if you're just doing it locally, the nice thing is that it's a a GUI for the Git workflows. So it allows you to visually see some of the things, especially for me, helpful if you get into more complex circumstances or rebasing and all that. Yeah, something's like not going quite right. I don't normally need it if I'm just doing, you know, git commit dash a dash m check in, you know, I, I don't need, you know, GitHub desktop to do that for me. But visualizing if, I have a whole, if I'm doing a refactor or a whole bunch of files are open or I'm wanting to see something, right, I think it actually has been really nice. And I'm appreciative that they, uh, you know, kind of took time to make that.
1: So why is it GitHub? GitHub desktop is what it's called. But is it is it called GitHub because they made it or? Yes. Oh, okay, got it. So it's for any Git, it's just made by GitHub.
0: You know, I, I'm going to assume it is, but I actually don't know. But yeah, I mean, if you, a lot of people for uh, hobby projects are using, of course, like open public GitHub repositories. And so, uh, you know, I still think it has use even for there. Um, but yeah, being able to visualize this, if you have a GitHub workflow, and I think uh, it's super valuable for a lot of those uh, more complex things that really help by being visual.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think it has extra features if you're using a GitHub Git repo, but it works for, for regular Git nice. as well. Yep, yep.
0: I also learned about some really powerful like Git tooling, and then it required me to first learn Emacs. And so uh, I, I failed, <laughs> and this is my, this is my uh, alternative. <laughs>
1: Oh man, poor Emacs. I used to use Emacs every single day, all the time, and now it's like Visual Studio Code just really is just so nice. It's very hard to to match that to the convenience and the 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 integration with the OS is just a lot nicer, which is a shame. Shame for Emacs.
0: All right. Well I think it's time to plan our projects.
1: That's right. Project planning. So um what are different Types of tropes, like there's a lot of these like waterfall and agile and...
0: Yeah, I, when we were preparing for the show, Jason and I were talking about this, which is a whole other subtopic. First of all, you know, this is by no means expert, and we're actually going to talk about these briefly and then not talk about them again and talk about more <laughs> practical, uh, thoughtful, common ways of, uh, you know, planning projects. But there are rigorous approaches... To this process, and in fact, if you are, which I, I suspect most people are, of a software engineer inclination, or um, you know, not a product or project manager who regularly interacts with this, you will probably um, be more at home with what we're going to talk about. If your profession is managing projects, you will probably find this appalling. So I apologize. In advance. <laughs> um, but you know, there. You, The traditional way people kind of built software is, I guess you'd call it waterfall. You do step one, you get it kind of done, you get your thing, then that flows into step two, then more work is done, and you flow into step three. And if you found a problem or issue, you would go back to some previous step and, and sort of start over. And then once you got to the end of your waterfall, your product would be built, right? People realized that was pretty inflexible, that requirements change, that there are issues. Then really popular was the agile method where the, as the name implies, the idea was to be more agile, to sort of get something up and working and then sort of find the next bit to be added, the next feature to be added and work in smaller units of time so you could get feedback from your customer. And I think that had a lot of really positive impacts on the industry. I think there's a lot of cases where maybe some of the assumptions about how you could or couldn't get feedback and how long stuff would take, like there were adaptations of the agile method. And maybe some people took it to be more of a stricture than even the uh, originators intended it to be. And so it got its own sort of like, you know, stigma. But what I would say is at least in the people I work with and the domains I work with, most people fall into some sort of hybrid approach. Definitely not a very rigorous, you know, the agile TM, you know, methodology um, with the full scrum, you know, all of that stuff. But definitely not the, you know, original waterfall, you know, with its, you know, strict representation. And I think there are uses for both, and important features of both. But most of the stuff that I see happening falls kind of like somewhere in the middle with some hybrid practical adaptation of learnings from both. But I also will say that in the industry and current part of the industry I work in, that there is project planning is needed because we always need organization, but the interaction with the customer isn't a contractual thing where uh, you would definitely, you know, want to make sure that your organization was such that it could be communicated externally.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think Patrick and I both are in a similar position where we work on longer term projects that don't have a lot of like tight SLAs where there's there's someone, you know, someone files an issue and you have 24 hours to respond to it yeah. type thing. So it's going to have that bent to it. But I think that, yeah, Patrick, I think Patrick's totally right. I mean, I think you think you always have a waterfall in a sense because you always you want to accomplish things that that like you want to scaffold. Like you want to build something and then you want the next thing to be derivative but then at the same time you want to be able to respond to the environment which changes massively Um, you know someone might write a research paper that scoops your idea and now you have to pivot or they write a paper that that causes you to have to change the way that you want to go about doing something and so you have to constantly adapt to that and so you need some of those agile methods as well so that you know there's a lot of different concerns. I mean, one is, you know, you adapted so many times that at the end, it's really hard to know what you really did. Um, so you want to keep track of all of those changes correctly. And, um, um, you know, ultimately, you know, give people like this, this uh, security that, that they're working on, that they're marching towards a goal, even when things are really erratic. I mean, that's what Agile is really good at. So one thing, no matter whether you choose one of these approaches or you do a hybrid or you go your own route, there's going to be several different factors of project planning that are always going to come up in every plan. You know, the first thing is headcount. So how many people um, or how many portions of people's time is dedicated to this project? The second one is, is going to be scope, right? Now, typically for a project, uh, well, the second one is going to be scope and then the third one is going to be time. Right, and there's this famous triangle. It's like headcount, scope, and time, and you can only control two of those. So if you want things done quicker, you can add more people, or if you want things done quicker, you can reduce the scope. But if you're not willing to do either of those things, you can't get things done quicker. Like once you've once you've solidified two of those three points in that triangle, then then the third one is is automatically decided for you. So I guess diving into all three of these. So um your headcount is relatively straightforward. I think where headcount gets more complicated is its relationship to the other two. So so being able to answer at the margin and say okay, you know, if we hired another person, then x would happen, right? Then we would have x more scope or we would be done this many weeks quicker. And so that's what makes the headcount part kind of interesting. Similar to you know, answering these counterfactuals, you're also prioritizing so you can answer counterfactuals the other direction. You know, if I took a person off this project, what would happen? And so that's, I think, what makes the headcount part, not just an accounting thing.
0: I think also the tricky part about headcount, which kind of everyone knows, but everyone always forgets, is like Jason is saying, like, if I, add, if I have one person and I add another person, I can do two times scope or half the time. Oh, no. <laughs> like, no, 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 that's definitely not how it works. Yeah.
1: No, And it's no, not no. even
0: an equation, right? It, it really depends on the work. And sometimes you don't know when you're getting started, like, can you easily segment this work? What is the communications yep. barrier? And I think mean, there's just so many nuances to that, but it's something I see that everyone forgets constantly,
1: Yep, yep. And also, I think that, you know, the teams are usually heterogeneous, right? And so you know, we had a situation where we ended up with way more research scientists than engineers on the team for a portion. And so there were things that couldn't get done that were high priority, even though we had the headcount, but we didn't have enough of the right type of headcount. So so that that becomes an issue as well. And then even there's there's some things that you know you have to look at the team. There's some things that people just don't want to do,
0: <laughs> um,
1: and so that becomes part of it too, right? So so I think all these things make headcount a little more complicated. But I would say it's the simplest of the three. And for that, I've generally just used a Excel spreadsheet. What about you, Patrick? Like, what tool do you use for headcount planning? Uh, nothing so
0: formal. I don't know that it's always been. You know, I guess not one monolithic project where we brought people on. It was always, we have a variety of projects. And the question kind of like you're saying to management was like, if I could get to another person, I could keep this up or take on more work. If you took a person away, please don't, uh, then you know we would not be able to do these things. And so it's never required. There's always been, I guess, at least for us like a, a pretty hard constraint on getting new people. So it was always make the most with what we have. And then occasionally, yep. You were successful enough that people wanted more of something, and then basically you were offered like, would would it be useful to have another person?
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: And then the answer was already kind of a given. Yes.
1: Yep. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. So I, I think for headcount planning, you don't need anything too fancy. I think just a spreadsheet or a Google Doc uh, is is more than enough. So the second one is scope. Um, now for scope, this is where I think having you know some kind of task reporting tool is really important because, because scope usually is, is, you know, a set of work items or things that you could be doing and you want to track those things. So what I've used in the past has been some variation of Kanban boards. So Mm. Kanban is basically you have, and I'm I'm probably going to butcher this too, but you have, (laughs) you know, different, different categories. You have one category of things that, you know, we want to work on or things that we're going to work on, but we haven't got to yet. Like they're, they're imminent, things that you're working on, things that are done, and then you have this other category called like the ice box, where it's these are things that we haven't, you know, committed to working on them yet. But they're ideas that you know we've. So usually, things get put in the ice box. They're not created in the ice box, right? And so you know, most of my scope planning has has, has followed along those lines. And then with each of these items, you'd want to assign some type of priority. So, so again, answering that question: If somebody leaves, you know, what's the item you would kick out? Um, you know, definitely would be uh, the constraints notwithstanding, it would be the lowest priority item. And if people join, you know, what things from the icebox could we bring and start working on? And yeah, that's that's effectively. It goes. The issue is is uh, people are you know constantly adding new things. If you're planning six months in advance, you know, halfway through that plan, there's a hundred different things that have been added. So. So there's a scope creep that you have to deal with. I guess I'll try to tackle the third one. And then
0: and maybe since it was yours, you, you can uh, follow up with whatever I missed. But when we talk about time, um, I think you were mentioning, right? Like this is a triangle. So if you have headcount and scope, then like sort of the question is, okay, well fine, time is constrained, but what is the time going to be? And I'll call out here that for me, at least I find it very difficult for people to remember the distinction between the number of hours a person can work the project versus what calendar date the project will be delivered on, and so yeah. people will say, "Oh, you know, you ask an engineer how long would it take you to do this thing," and they'll say, "Oh, it takes me six hours." It's like, "Okay, well, cool. I'll put it down for you to have tomorrow." And it's like, well, no, no, that's not how that works. Like, I'm not going to work six hours until next week or until these five dependencies come in." And so, saying time is uh, correct, but yeah, a, a little bit. Um, Ambiguous. And then also, you know, when we talk about you've had scope and then now you say time, so you try to define the feature well, but there's always variability to how long it's going to take to implement that feature. And so, you know, people do, oh, it's t shirt sizing. Is it a small, medium, or large, uh, you know, project? And you can take those approaches and try to roll them up, give them points, say the points don't matter. But then someone has a rubric for how many points equals, you know, how many hours or it, it, it always kind of ends up that way. Um, and an interesting discussion I, I kind of want to try is if you uh, sequence out all the things that you need to do and, and your estimate for not just how long you think they would take on average, but how sure you are about that time. So in other words, there's some uncertainty on each. Then what you could kind of roll up and get the minimum and maximum, right? So if something takes one week plus or minus a day, and then something else takes two weeks plus or minus five days, you could roll all those up and all those plus or minuses. And you get some absurd, I'll finish somewhere between one month and one year, right? Like you're getting, yeah, it's, it's going to be not super useful. Or what you could do, which I saw someone saying is, is sort of play some Monte Carlo, you know, drawing from those distributions and actually show like, oh, the bulk, if you assume that they're normally distributed <clears> they're not. Um, and then you right, drew, drew each of these, you know, sequential things and did a stack up and you're randomly choosing, and then looked at the outcomes, what you'll find is 95% of the time, you're going to finish, you know, around six months, plus or minus a week, right? And then that way, you can kind of communicate what the spread of that distribution kind of looks like, what the shape looks like, not just the extents. And then people can kind of internalize like, oh, as it gets closer, you would expect it to narrow in. And, you know, hey, that they landed, you know, two weeks out from what they said is actually perfectly reasonable. They did a good job, you know? I've never seen yeah, someone yeah. be willing to play this game, but it sounded interesting.
1: Yeah, it may, no, it makes sense. I mean, I think the the high-level thing is to definitely record um, these kind of interactions. So if, yeah, if you're chronically over-budgeting or under-budgeting, you want to be able to adapt to that. Um, you don't want to just, like, continue to sort of, like, recursively fall victim to like your own hallucinations. It's like you over budget, and maybe be kind of forgot you over budgeted. And then, well, you know, nobody got fired. And then next half like you doubly over budget, right? So you want to actually have that accounting. So you can say, oh no, I actually thought we were going to get a lot more done this half. And I need to sort of like, you know, realize that and pivot for next time. Um, another thing that's really important, you alluded to this with time is, is, is the dependencies, right? So if if something's going to take a day, but you're waiting on another team, then you're. It's going to take a day plus however long that team takes to do that thing that you're waiting on, and that could be a month. It could be a year, right? And so, uh, for for time tracking, for for project time tracking, it's good to use a Gantt chart. Which a Gantt chart, if you haven't seen it, is um, it's a way of representing sort of a graph of events. And so the events that depend on other ones start when those events end. And so the way the Gantt chart works is, you know, anything that can be done right away just starts at time t equals zero. And then when those things end, the new things that are now possible start when those things end. And so you can kind of see, you know, if, if you had the way the Gantt chart works is, you know, if you had effectively infinite headcount and your goal is to just like go through these items taking however long they take. This is how long the whole thing is going to take. And some things that might only take a little bit of time, they might be really tiny intervals on this Gantt chart, but they might be way out into the future because they depend on so many other things. So, so yeah, I mean, I think the timing part of project planning might be the most important because, you know, especially if other teams, you know, let's say another team, let's just say if a project that you think is going to take three months, and your whole project plan is six months. But it depends on something and then that thing comes, uh, you know, four months late. Well, now, you know, in advance um, that you're going to be late, like, you know, that you can't get that done in time because you weren't able to start at the right time. Just kind of a meta point here. But um, in my opinion, you always want to um, announce your failures as soon as possible. Yes. That's my, yeah okay you agree with me on this cuz this is my opinion on it I haven't actually asked anybody else's opinion on this yet but but yeah I mean if something is going to fail 2 months from now and you know it you want to I mean not announce to the whole world like write an email to you know everyone at company hey I'm a failure <laughs> like that's not how it works no. <laughs> like you want to tell like the stakeholders like this you know it's 6 months out and it's I'm already telling you it's not going to happen and this is why um you want to do that quickly and project planning, especially a living document, will give you that information when you need it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole thing we could get into here that talks about, like, risk and the critical path. And we're, like, really running out of time, so we have to zip through these things. But, I mean, I think what you're saying is exactly right, Jason, that you can't know what parts you should decompose or de-risk or bring forward earlier, or parallelize, until you sort of see, like, what the transition of features you need to go through that is going to take longest and therefore determine. And also, if you run ahead of schedule, which seems to never happen, then like <laughs> yeah, you, good something luck. else can move into the critical path that wasn't before. Or if something yep. stretches longer, you need to know when it moves from off to on the critical path at what time delay. And so a chart is really, in some ways, underutilized. In other words, overly prescriptive in some cases. But there, there is a balance there where it's a very useful tool.
1: Yeah, I guess to to wrap this up, a couple of things. One thing is, uh, don't get too caught up on tools. When I started, I I mean, I was looking at the Manager Tools podcast, and what I realized was the tools actually aren't that important. Like you can use a spreadsheet, you can write it by hand in a notebook, and uh, the tools will help. But unless you're project planning, you know, uh, all day as your job, uh, you know, if you're spending let's say five hours a week or ten hours a week project planning the tools aren't going to shave that much time off of those five or 10 hours, right? So don't worry too much about the tools. It's really about building those processes and gaining that experience. Um, One last bit about project planning is is to be cognizant of the time scale um, and recognize that all three of these scales I'm gonna mention are important for different reasons. So, you know, in the short term, so let's say, you know, two weeks or a month ahead, you want to have very clear kind of work packages. So, you know, people are being productive. Um, you know, people aren't frustrated. If someone's overwhelmed, that you know about that as well. Um, and so that's, you know, we call it, the Agile would call those sprints, right? But, uh, but effectively, you think of it as like the short term, you know, a couple of weeks to a month. You want to have in the medium term, let's say six months, you want to have milestones or maybe a year, you want to have milestones. And you want to be able to have sort of a state of the union where you kind of reflect and say, okay, in the past six months, um, you know, I have, uh, you know, our team has done these things. And then the next six months, we're going to do these other things. And you want to really broadcast that and announce that and make that part of the sort of ethos of your team. And so that's in the medium term. Now, the long term is looking out maybe three years, four years. And you might say, well, why? do I even need a long-term vision? And, you know, especially if you're doing, let's say research or, you, you know, you're working on some, or you're doing some project that's in maintenance mode, like why do you need a three-year, four-year vision? And I think the answer is because ultimately your project planning and your sort of culture will start to kind of blend together. And, you know, setting that long-term vision will also kind of set the kind of culture and the kind of environment that you're going to have on your, in your project or on your team. And so even if your long-term vision, it might be hard to say three years from now, you know, what research are we going to do? Like practically speaking, there's no way to know that. You're really going to use that long-term vision to describe kind of your overall philosophy and and, and sort of delusions of grandeur that you can create um, about the future, where you want it to go. And so depending on how you structure that, um, it will kind of guide the, the, the people who are interested in working on that project, right? I think a, a person put it to me in a really good way. They basically said, you know, someone's going to take a sort of big risk on something that has a big reward. And so that long-term vision is a way to sort of show that big reward to people so that they feel like they're jumping into something something that has a lot of mass. So I think all three of them are super important. Again, don't worry too much about the tech, but uh, we gave uh, hopefully a lot of good tips here on on how to do that effectively and how those things interplay. Nice, that was really fun. Cool. All right, everyone. Thanks again for uh, supporting the show on Patreon. We really appreciate it. And uh, hope you all like the transcripts that we were able to add and uh, the variety of other features that us and our, our producers have been putting together. Um, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll catch y'all in a couple of weeks. Music
0: by Eric Barnbellin.
1: Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution to uh, Patrick and I, and share alike in kind.